Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks. How'd you like the new intro music, Jason? I, I like the new intro, but I love especially that Q music, Q Brett radio voice immediately. Like, I need <laughs> yeah. to work on this. I think this is why Ten you're years, the more man. popular host. 10 years, you know. It's uh, it is funny. It's it's like you know you do you do put on a voice for radio. You know I've got the face for radio too. They say, but uh, um, so we're going to do a panel discussion um, on agility in the space and and what's happening with um, you know the the infrastructure changes we're seeing globally, the acceleration of uh, um, you know the uh, the technology. Uh, technologies like AI and so forth and bit of finance stuff. Um, and uh, we got a couple of friends joining us, Ron Shevlin, regular contributor to the show, uh, contri- senior contributor at Forbes and also uh, um, chief research officer at uh, Cornerstone Research, Ron Shevlin. Welcome back. Thanks, Brett. Jason, how you did, guys doing? Did I get all that right? You were close. It's Cornerstone Advisors. There is actually Cornerstone another company Advisors. called Cornerstone Research, but uh, I don't think they're going to uh, be too mad that you just gave him a little push oh, pitch gosh. there, you know? All right. Sorry about that, man. No um, worries. And also joining us uh, as banking industry principal from Total Expert is James White. James, welcome to the show. Uh, hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so maybe we kick off with sort of a macro view. Um, you know, we 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 are supposedly at the bottom of the whole crypto thing, unless Genesis, well, Genesis is is declaring bankruptcy, but I think, you know, the crypto guys I'm talking to are saying we can survive Genesis, but if Binance goes, we're in trouble, but it looks looks good for now. Binance and, uh, uh, you know, um, Coinbase look, look to be okay. But on the fintech side, of course, we have had a contraction. Now, keep in mind, 2022 was still the second biggest year in terms of fintech funding we'd ha- we've had in the last decade, but a, quite a contraction of a, a 40% contraction from 2021. So, um, you know, to some extent, there's a feeling like ba- banks are sort of saying, well, you know, we can take the foot off the gas a little bit in terms of response here, because, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the buy now, pay later guys and, and stuff like that. But you know, what do you guys think in terms of macro view for sort of the fintech versus uh, bank uh, postures uh, this year? I like how you're coming in hot, Brett. Let's just throw down banks. You know, you know let's go through the era <laughs> of you know fintechs. We don't need banks. We're going to replace banks. Banks are bad. Suddenly, you know, things get tough. Banks, you know, have something we love called customers and keep us and out revenue. of trouble with regulators. Suddenly, you know, the shift from direct to customer whether consumer businesses, you know, direct to bank to customer in the shift in terms of a channel. And I'd say the interesting thing from the bank purview is, so the fintechs are all about banks as channel partners now, you know, we can help them modernize and solve their problems with better uh, UX, et cetera. In the banks, I'd say fall into one or two camps. Those who kind of say, see, we told you so, those fintechs, those damn kids, 
never we're going to make it. We're banks. We do banky things. We do it well. And then I'd say there's an equal mix. And this is new, a surprising number who are like, oh yeah, we're more like a tech company that happens to have a charter and we partner with fintechs all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's true of JP Morgan Chase. You know, they've got more developers than than Google, yeah, right? But and, I would say and, it is actually true. They fall in, into right. a third camp, which is those that are actually like that. And I would say, you know, there are handfuls you know, that really have built it from the ground up. The likes right. of, you know, look DBS at Cross Rivers. Dev yeah, chops river, or yeah. you know MVB Bank and if Cross River actually did one of these two, they actually bought development shops, right? So they like they said, hey, we can't go build this culture internally. We're going to do an aqua hire because we need you know not just the technical skills, but we need the culture. I believe the culture is crucial because banks so long have developed products and processes around the back office. Uh, and then rolled it out to their customers instead of focusing on the customer's user experience. Uh, well, maybe James, maybe get office. into that. I mean, you you made the transition. You know, you went from you know the traditional banking world to a fintech. What did you observe as the, were the differences culturally? Yeah. So the first thing I'd, I had to do was buy skinny jeans. So uh, that <laughs> that was a big transition uh, for me, and wear uh, t shirts under my sport coat instead of a button up. Uh, but it has really been uh, a massive uh, transition. You know, because uh, historically, it's all been about regulation and compliance and uh, processes and procedures and making sure that uh, everything is buttoned up before you roll it out. Uh, and that really, uh, in my view, affects uh, the customer experience for both uh, the uh, industry as a whole, as well as uh, the banking customers. And from a fintech perspective, it's more about making an, an impact. It's more about being uh, agile and showing agility. It's it's being able to pivot. Um, I, I give a, a great example uh, without giving too many details. Of, uh, there was a particular uh, thing that I wanted to accomplish uh, at my previous organization, and, and I tried for three years uh, that I, to get it implemented. Um, once I moved over to, to Total Expert, uh, I presented the idea and it was rolled out in about a week and a half. So uh, uh, yeah, we see that as a common trait, years, right? Yeah, always be. Yeah, shooting. you know, one of the uh, interesting things about that is with the uh, layoffs in the big tech and the fintech areas, I hear a lot of people talking about how these are opportunities for the banks to kind of pick up staff and recruit. And I think that they're just kind of smoking something, to tell you the truth, because the because of that cultural aspect that you re refer to. I mean, people who wanted to work for fintechs or even the big tech companies seems to me to be a hard place to go to to some community bank or even a J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank of America that the, the culture is just different. It moves at a different pace. And I don't think that those people who run into fintechs and big techs were looking for the pace of, of a bank or credit union, which to me just means that the banks and credit unions need to up their game a little bit and start, you know, positioning yeah, Ron, that's what I was, that's what I was going to ask. Is it the, the people joining that need to change their expectations or are we seeing that the survivors, you know, in kind of the coming, you know, nuclear winter of financial services and the changes there, if they don't up their game and change the culture to adapt to the, the people who want to join them or need to join them, are they going to be go the way of the dinosaurs? No, I think you kind of alluded to it before. You've got a, you know, at this point, a small percentage of banks in particular, but a good number of credit unions who are aggressive about either partnering with fintechs 
or moving into the banking as a service embedded finance space and just recognize that um, you know they've got to become more attractive to to talent um, than they've been in the past. Well, but I think there's new talent as well, right? Because um, you know one of the things we have seen that the the fintechs have done um, and they've really cracked is the whole digital acquisition stuff. And for most of these fintechs, 100% of their revenue comes from digital. Um, 100% of their customer acquisition is digital. And um, that is the gap that we see. If you look at Nubank or WeBank in China or whatever, you know, the, the leading neobanks or, you know, transfer-wise, you know, um, Chime, SoFi. You know, these guys are so far ahead in terms of that capability that you have a very real now change in terms of expectations around cost of acquisition and, you know, distribution, uh, you know, uh, overall distribution overhead and things like that, that are coming into the industry. So you have to bring in new talent that can sort of build those skills as well and, and new technology. So I don't know if it's just a culture shift about, you know, whether we're going to change the sort of, you know, skinny jeans we wear, right? I think there's some fundamental infrastructure changes that are needed. What, what are your thoughts? James? Yeah, I uh, I could not agree more. So first off, uh, banks uh, have had the luxury of just growing by 10, 20, 30 percent uh, because of free money o- over the years. And now uh, we're in a rising rate environment uh, where they're going to have to flex muscles uh, that they haven't had to flex in a while. Uh, and just opening your doors and growing by 30 percent, those days are over. And so you've got to start to, to focus on a lot of these fundamental things. Uh, the, the old adage of uh, grow or die has not gone away uh, just because it's gotten harder. Uh, and so uh, we still have to, to find that shift and be able to think creatively. One of the things I was thinking about as you were listing those neobanks and, is they're able to monetize in different ways than we have historically thought of uh, from a, yeah. a banking you know, and credit union space. Uh, and so they're able to go after uh, markets that uh, banks and credit unions haven't historically wanted to go after. Mm, True. Great- uh, particularly in the case of the two I mentioned, particularly them, you know, a lot of their business is traditionally unbanked mm-hmm. customers. Um, you know, it's their first real bank relationship that they've had. So, um, Ron, is there a generational element to this as well? And, and you know, um, you know, I, I know you focus more on the U.S. market, but is there a generational shift in terms of the digital um, side of things in terms of acquisition? Yeah, absolutely. Although if you ask a lot of bankers, um, they'll they'll downplay this a bit. They'll keep pointing to the fact that so many of their applications and, and uh, uh, new product opening, both from a deposit and lending side, come in through the branch that they poo-poo this. But what they're missing is that their digital experience is so horrible that they're basically forcing people in into the branch or into human assisted ch- channels. Um, so you know a lot of the research still gets done online. And I think what uh, a lot of banks miss, especially on the lending and mortgage side in particular, is that there's a heavy influence of family and friends, uh, a variety of sources that are all digital. So it's not just where the application process happens um it, it's you know very much digital from from the total experience perspective and the bankers a lot too many of them just put the blinders on and say well you know we we need to get people into the into the branch so that they can talk to us and if they talk to us then they'll love us it's mm. it, 
not just and not Ron, the I think part happening. of the reason to drive them to the branch is from a user experience it, of the digitals, not just, you know, circa 1990s, maybe early 2000s, MySpace era-esque, but it's not adaptive and doesn't recognize people have different needs, different approaches, right? It, it, it's a one-size-fits-all for the most part. But if you get a human interaction, like that human can actually adapt and go, oh, you know, Ron, you know, doesn't look like he's, you know, super prime, but it turns out, you know, he's got this other thing over here, you know, some other transition or the question you're asking that the application doesn't pick up, you know, the human can intervene. And I think that's one of the things that for the vast majority of banks are lacking is actually better use of their data to drive their personalization. You know, too often personalization is, you know, just like my dentist, send me a text message with my name attached to it to recognize it's my birthday. You know, it's like, well, that's not personalized. Yeah. One last point that I want to just throw out there to the generational difference, guys. Uh, I conducted some consumer research back in 2021, and I asked, uh, specifically surveyed consumers who had applied for either a mortgage or a refi in the prior four years and asked them to rate on a scale of zero to 100 their experience. And the average ratings for the the uh, the Gen Zers, the you know under twenty seven crowd, was about seventy five. It went up to about eighty for millennials and mid eighties for Gen Xers and Boomers. So there's an experience aspect here, but clearly a generational difference in in what they're experiencing. Uh, and I don't think a lot of financial institutions are adapting to that that generational difference. And and so part of that is investment in tech. Um, so, you know, James, tell me what you guys are focusing on this year in terms of the the tech stuff and where you think the the opportunity is for for banks and and fintechs. Yeah, so uh, tech is ever more important now because uh, the business model of going after to customers via convenience still exists, and now tech is an extension of that convenience. And so you've got to be able to to be flexible. So we're we're really focused on being able to to pivot because things like uh, liquidity concerns or deposit growth are, are big strategic items right now that you need to have tech to support. Um, but those things will will change. Um, you know, back to to loan growth and relationship pricing and relationship lending and all those other things to try to keep production up. And you, you've got to be able to have technology that can can pivot. And, you know, the the older technology that's out there uh, really just doesn't have that flexibility uh, to do that. And so you've got to look at things like moving into the cloud, which is really uh, kind of old news these days. Uh, yeah, you know, but still, you know, a lot of banks yeah. still haven't gone there. You know, they're still, um, you know, uh, with fairly traditional um, core systems. But if you look all of the fintechs that we talked about before, they're all based on cloud tech. Mm. All of the latest banking as a service plug-in technology is cloud-based rather. Um, you know, and so you have the, this sort of, uh, all the fintechs are, are, are essentially cloud-based. You know, if they do use a core, it's bundled in a very different way in the tech stack. So, um, you know, you do have a very different a, a technical environment that supports agility in the cloud that you don't have in on-premise solutions. And then, you know, you've got, um, you know, you, you do have the, the change um, 
you know, complexities of those standard core systems as well. As soon as you, as soon as you want to go outside of the box, it's a year or two um, to get that uh, dev stuff done where, as you were talking about for, um, you know, the fintechs, that cycles a lot faster. Um, but uh, um, in, in terms of the cloud stuff, um, do you, where does the US sit, do you think, on a global basis on, on this front? Yeah, I think that we're still behind the, the times. Um, a lot of it has been around uh, concern for compliance, but I believe we at fintechs have been able to solve that through tokenization and encryption and uh, storing uh, key information in different ways. Uh, so uh, the late followers, you know, need to be able to adopt, you know, cloud-based uh, solutions. I do believe that uh, compliance will continue to uh, evolve. Uh, the technology stack and push us more to, you know, one source of truth and other vendors accessing that one source of truth instead of pulling data into multiple different directions. Um, but time will tell there. Jason, you know, in terms of the Alloy Lab stuff, you know, where where are you guys seeing the the interest coming now? Give it, you know, is it fairly consistent from what we had a couple of years ago or has the posture changed recently? Well, so we've got partnerships right now with AWS and Google Cloud related to this. And the reason to do the partner, especially for the smaller institutions, is you know they see the value now. Like they, you no longer have to convince the product owners that they need to move in that direction, and it will improve both agile, the speed with which they move, and the agility, which is the speed in which you can change directions. But where the ball drops is you get to, you know, risk, risk slash board slash your examiner. And it goes into a black box right now of like right. cloud, scary. Is Amazon stealing all of our data? Is our data sitting, you know, in a warehouse that others are going to be able to see it? Things that the largest providers, you know, have solved long ago. I mean, BBVA has been on Google Cloud for how long now? For everything from email to the back office, right? It, it is very solvable awesome. in some regards, you know, Let's face it, everyone I think listening knows this and will nod their head. It's it is you're you're gonna tell me you're better at security because you have the server in a in a locked cage, you know, in your branch basement, as opposed to the people, you know, that Amazon and Google employ, right? Like it's just yeah. not gonna be there. So I'd say yeah. the leading banks know they need to get there and are making great strides, right? A lot of our work is around how do we by working together do you do it? so that you can be more nimble, more agile, and have greater agility without compromising security. There's one other thing I want to bring up, though, related to cloud that is kind of non-obvious. And that's actually what the business model looks like for these cloud providers. Right. One of the big impediments I see, if you look at the traditional cores, is anytime you want to go do something new, they want a five-year contract with minimums right, attached right, right. to it. So your propensity to go, oh, I'm going to go do something new and risky, and I'm going to commit to five years of doing it, even if it doesn't work, or I you know, need to exercise agility and change directions. The cloud's used to that. It's built for that. The yeah, ability yeah. to turn things up and turn things down, right? Like that, it, not only does it technologically enable it, it gives you the business chops you need to serve that. Yeah, Absolutely. Right, um, I wanted to jump in on yeah, your comment anyway. about the, the fintechs and the cloud. I mean, you're absolutely right. They are cloud-based and have done a far superior job of digital experience in general and, and digital account opening in particular. But there is an area that I can't help but wonder how good they are at, and that's kind of the CRM side of the coin. 
Um, you know, listen, we've spent 20 years in, in the banking side deploying CRM, and I'm not sure they've got a lot to show for it. But on the other hand, I'm not sure the fintechs are really looking at, I mean, they've done a great job at digital acquisition, but I'm not sure how how well they are right. doing yeah, that Revolut's sort of had customer some, relationship some issues there. Monzo's had some issues. You're right. They yeah. have been so wondering, James, the... if you've got some thoughts on that because I think you guys get a lot into the CRM side. And I, I see that as this either, you know, huge need or potential opportunity for the banks to kind of do a better job and not lose their, their customer base. No, I think that's uh, great. And thanks, uh, Ron, for the question. So, First off, historically, the CRMs uh, have really been more of a, a sales reporting tool and a sales accountability tool more than anything. And uh, if I could, which uh, it's almost impossible, I would love to even get a, away from the CRM term uh, because it, it comes with so many different expectations, but it's almost impossible to, to do that. So what uh, we really are focused on at Total Expert and what I believe is the future is really being able to create a, a evolving customer or member profile and being able to look at all of the data sources uh, from service to transaction to accounts and, and being able to, to build that out so that you understand how engaged your customer or member is and then being able to engage them uh, if they aren't. So uh, I believe Amazon and Facebook and some of the others and, and even in the, the retail space uh, have uh, led the way in, in a lot of this. And we've benefited by uh, our brand and banking and credit union to be able to be behind the times. Well, now the consumer expects that more than ever. And so uh, we've got a what I'm calling more of a customer intelligence platform where you're able to, to deliver intelligent uh, interactions, whether that be through channels or through human interaction, because you truly understand that customer um, their life events, as well as how they're interacting with your institution. That's where we're moving. I, I think personalization generally is going to be, you know, a big area of application of artificial intelligence and, and the data science, because you're looking for, um, you know, modeling contextually where the best opportunities are for engaging a customer in real time, right? So, you know, embedded finance I'm talking about here, not just sticking a credit application into the purchase agreement process like buy now, pay later, but, you know, truly like, you know, um, personalizing the experience for a customer so that we know, you know, we know when they need credit before they need it, right? Or, um, you know, we, we can anticipate that. The examples I use, like walking to a grocery store and someone getting a message saying, looks like you need a bit more cash to do your grocery shopping you know, today, instead of letting them get to the checkout, you know, have their debit card declined and having to find another card, right? So um, that sort of error of personalization requires a data competency as well, which requires to some extent data lakes and things that are supported in the cloud as well. So, you know, there is a lot of this sort of future infrastructure capability of where banks appear to be going that doesn't really, it's going to be, you know, best best case if you have a lot of on-prem reliance, you're going to have to build a layer on top of that anyway to sort of act as a translation layer or a personalization layer, right? Yeah, absolutely. You've got to find a way uh, to um, evolve the way you build relationships. So historically, it was uh, if you were a customer for life, it's because you got your first loan from the bank 
uh, you went by the teller uh, and you went to school or church with that teller and you, you knew them. Well, now uh, the younger demographics, uh, they still expect a relationship, uh, but they expect it in a new, you know, more technological way. And we have to find ways to, to interact with them in meaningful ways, just as you mentioned. Yeah, James, I think you hit a really important point that we're not say, suggesting the human goes entirely out of this, but there's a level of augmentation that needs to go into the relationship because AI and the amount of data that banks and other systems can collect to deliver not just personalization at a veneer, but actual, you know, tailor products experience, timeliness advice in a way that creates accessibility that only, you know, the wealthiest have had access to because they have teams of people paying attention to what their needs are. And that can be, you know, through this idea of, you know, better use of technology. It's not one size fits all. It can drive personalizations. It doesn't treat each one of us as if we're the same, even if we, you know, at the surface look the same, right? We each have unique needs driving us. And it really is that fusion, I think, that it comes down to is banks need to rethink what it means to be a bank. Fintechs need to rethink what is it they do that delivers value. So as we go into the break and say, the thing to think about is in a new world, if we were to start from you know, a blank sheet of paper for the fintechs too, because to a large degree, they've actually just digitized the existing bank products. What does the financial service institution of the future look like if you were to start over to be technology powered? So James, just before we head to break, um, can you tell us um, you know, how, to, how people can follow up with you and tell us where to find out more information about what Total Expert's doing in the area? Yes. Uh, so I would love for you to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm James White, uh, Industry Principal at Total Expert. Uh, you can reach us at www.totalexpert.com uh, and love to have a conversation with someone uh, and really just talk about banking strategy and the strategy of CRM. Fantastic. All right. So check it out, www.totalexpert.com or follow up with James on LinkedIn. All right, Jason, back to you for the break. That brings us uh, into the next segment coming up. Uh, the folks from Breaking Banks Asia with the debut podcast. James, thanks for joining us. More after the break. This show is brought to you by Alloy Labs. As much as we love talking on the show, we believe that action is more valuable than talk. Alloy Labs is the industry leader in helping fearless bankers drive exponential growth through collaboration, exclusive partnerships, and powerful network effects that give them an unfair advantage. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Alloy Labs, banking unbound. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Hello and welcome, listeners. Last episode, we looked at why Australia's open banking system is, after five years, still to get going. 
Well, this episode, we're moving to India and the Philippines, where the story couldn't be more different. There are obvious business cases for open banking to start with, and the rationale is more about opportunity. That's opportunity to get a bank account for the first time, or a credit card, or verify your identity. And our first guest to talk about this is Smita Agarwal. She has a long background in financial inclusion, which is just the area where open banking is set to make the most difference. She's a Harvard Business School alumni, a guest lecturer at Stern Business School in New York, and for three decades she has worked for some of the biggest banks in India, including the Reserve. Today she's on the other side of the corporate rope, advising USVC Flourish Ventures, doing her own angel investing, and sitting on boards of fintechs like Ugrow Capital. Thank you very much for joining us, Smita. Thank you so much for having me here. It's my pleasure and delight to be part of this. I'd like to open by repeating something you said in our first conversation about the key building blocks of a digital economy. These are digital payments because they keep money moving quickly throughout a country's economy, uh, identities for everyone, regardless of whether they qualify for a bank account, and data sharing, which, done well, can overcome a lack of trust and information asymmetries. These are the foundations of India's open banking system and are creating this amazing ubiquitous access to finance. So why do you think countries like India stand to benefit the most from these innovations? I think emerging economies stand to benefit more than advanced ones because they tend to have lower levels of financial inclusion and less financial depth. So there is a lot more white space that is there to cover in in developing countries, which could actually unlock uh, the the open banking and the open financing could unlock a lot more potential in these countries compared to the developed countries where it could where it's much more around marginal improvements in product innovation, product design, better competition, newer categories of players coming. So it's it's a it's a different order of magnitude problem that is being addressed, and I think the the developing countries stand a lot more to gain. You make it so clear that open banking really does solve so many more obvious problems in an emerging economy. Yes, and let me here highlight the notion of embedded finance. You know, so traditionally, financial services and banking have been delivered through specialized. Uh, institutions, but you know, while there have been very good reasons for doing so, it has also been one of the limitation in making it, in reaching uh, financial services to everyone. With digitization, there is now an opportunity to make financial services available at a cost and in a manner even to the smallest and the remotest of customer. And I think it's important, and that's where the whole idea of embedded finance, where you're embedding financial products as part of other real-life use cases, when you shop for groceries in real time, there's credit assessment that is done on you and an offer is made for you to pay it in installments. So embedded finance allows contextual products when you need them and where you need them. Southeast Asia uh, countries like Indonesia have very low banking penetration. But on the other hand, they have one of the fastest growing and thriving digital economy led by many super apps like GoTo, Grab, uh, Shopee. And, And for many customers in Indonesia, interestingly, their first exposure to a financial product like credit or insurance is through the Gojek app and not a bank. So that's the magic of embedded finance that is possible through open finance APIs. 
In our first episode, we were riffing with Brett King about the futuristic possibilities that embedded finance could offer. And I really love the idea that open banking-based financial inclusion is already allowing people to leapfrog into that future. But I'm also really interested in the way businesses are benefiting from this shift in thinking about finance and data. So could you go into this a little bit for us? Absolutely right. And so let me illustrate this with 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 an example. So MSME is a very, very large sector in India, uh, which contributes significantly to the GDP as well as is a large employer. But it has been traditionally ignored or has been underserved by the formal financial sector due to lack of verifiable income data. Today, through an open API architecture, the goods and sales tax data of every MSME can be accessed that allows their sales and revenue to be reliably estimated along with granular details. And that combined with banking data again sourced through open APIs provides a robust credit underwriting and monitoring mechanism for a customer segment that was excluded from getting access to much needed affordable credit. And we've already seen this play out, you know, for example, the credit to MSME has reached 1.6 times of pre-pandemic levels this year. So the largest use case of open finance clearly in credit deficit countries like India and much of developing Asia is really loan applications for individuals and SMEs. And this is a very compelling use case to see the immediate gains of implementing an open finance framework. How did India manage to crack open those data banks? Because it's not exactly an economy known for its flexibility. Really speaking, if you look at, along with increased penetration of mobile phones and then there was a rapid drop in data costs, India embarked on its digital journey, if you will, seven to eight years ago. As per Findex 2014, India was at 53% bank account penetration at that point of time. And then, you know, using that same analogy of key building blocks, India actually had Aadhaar as the foundational digital identity layer. And then it had, it created real-time interoperable payments rails, which is UPI, Unified Payment Interface. And next, India is re-architecting data flows from the current organization-centric approach to an individual-centric model. It is empowering the individuals to own, control, and use their data by enacting a consent framework. And I think the big Uh, uh, relevance of a consent framework is it gives control to the individuals to uh, over their own data that resides with banks, insurance companies, utilities, healthcare providers, government departments. As part of this uh, initiative, a new category of licensed entities called account aggregators have been created. They provide a standardized mechanism for sharing data between individuals and institutions in a secure manner. It's still early days, but I believe Nearly 2 million accounts have already been onboarded and linked. And I think it's important to note that this initiative is not just restricted to the banking data. It spans across a range of data custodians, as I mentioned, insurance companies, mutual funds, tax authorities, and much more. And so it is actually an an all-encompassing way to allow the citizens who are now 
potentially more data rich than they are economically rich uh, to leverage that for their own benefits. You've worked across major banks in India and for the Bank of India at one point. So you know the internal processes and the internal politics. How challenging was it to bring the incumbents along and have them make space for those aggregators? How challenging was it to wrangle that regulatory apparatus into doing something that is worldly? I think you're you're absolutely right in underscoring the challenge and difficulty in pulling something like this together. But I must say that during the pandemic, it was evident that where digital systems worked effectively and served all people, they helped reduce inequality. So from a policymaker and regulatory standpoint, there is the inclusion agenda, which is quite uh, clear and it gets fulfilled through open banking. However, in addition, I do believe that there is a strong business case for banks, FIs, various incumbents, fintechs, and startups as well. You know, providing a standardized mechanism for sharing data between individuals and institutions in a secure manner leads to uh, lower customer acquisition costs, lower frauds, uh, uh, lower transaction processing costs, much better efficiencies, and which in turn leads to the expansion of the market. This is already evident in India. Having said that, I must admit that it is true that markets in which there are a handful of dominant players, there is initial resistance to collaborate. So are the large incumbents now banking this or are they being dragged kicking and screaming? So, you know, if you see the the when the interoperable uh, payment switch, the UPI was introduced, the largest bank in the country was the last one to join. It's always the biggest It always one. is. And uh, having said that, it is now very evident that the amount of expansion that has happened in the entire digital payment space, for example, there was no way that could have got had that kind of speed and momentum without you know without everybody coming together. So some of these efforts they take much longer. It is a challenge to align individual incentives with the ecosystem incentives. But I think the 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 benefit of it is becoming more and more evident, especially I think in emerging markets. In fact, I, you know, according to a McKinsey report, the boost to the economy from broad adoption of open data systems could be as high as one and a half percent of GDP in 2030 for countries like you know, UK, US, but it could be as much as four to five percent in India. Yeah, wow, four to five percent could be a game changer. I'd like to know as well how far India is going to take this, because for a lot of countries, banking is not the end point. So how far is India going? The tax data is already being integrated. There is already initiatives being made in India to create a health stack that allows for aggregation of health data. So absolutely, I think uh, uh, India is 
essentially thinking much beyond banking data because the banking data is not fully representative about the of the financial lives of individuals utilities data for example your electricity bills your phone bills that data has much higher frequency uh, and longer uh, uh, um, data sets are available uh, so there is absolutely a uh, 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 the objective of in integrating as many data sources that could help in uh, in providing better services to every citizen of the country. When we first spoke ahead of recording this interview, you were telling me about the opportunities open banking is creating around access to credit in India and how it's moving lending out of these informal backrooms for everyone from individuals to micro, small and medium businesses, that's MSMEs. Can you tell us a bit more about this? So let me talk about MSMEs as well as individuals. So about MSMEs, uh, historically, all kinds of MSME or corporate lending would only be based on collateral or security. You know, so it, it was primarily asset-backed lending. Now, there's a very large segment of MSMEs that, would, that do not have asset to provide as collateral. Uh, or even if they do have an asset like a property or a shop or a home, uh, they may not have a perfect title that is acceptable to the lender. And therefore, they were excluded from this whole opportunity of getting finance from the formal financial lenders. Their needs most often would get met by informal lenders or none at all. And I think that has completely changed because of the access to the GSD data and the banking data, which allows for their cash flows to be verified. And, and therefore, the lending is now shifting from asset-backed lending to cash flow-based lending, where you have visibility of the cash flows and the sales and the revenue of a MSME, and you're using that to underwrite and uh, and determine the eligibility. That's a huge shift and that suddenly opens up the eligibility to a very large segment that was completely excluded. Similarly, on the individual side, the primary eligibility criteria used to be the bureau score. You know, if you have borrowed before, what's your uh, uh, credit bureau score? But in India, only you know, less than 20% of adults had a bureau score. That doesn't mean that the rest were uh, not credit worthy. It's just that they didn't have any uh, uh, method to prove their credit worthiness. And by opening up access to alternative data and banking data and utilities data, you're now creating a new form of underwriting method to provide credit to what I would call as new to credit customers. These are first-time borrowers who come into the formal financial network through this uh, method and are then able to improve their credit scores and build their credit history over time and become um, beneficiaries of the full range of financial products that are available. Moving away from India, which countries in the region do you think would benefit from a shift or a greater shift to open banking? 
Indonesia would be a great example. So in Indonesia, the banking penetration is close to 50%, but the digital economy is, is really robust. So you have, you know, a very high number of people who would be shopping online, would be spending online, would be having a digital wallet, but would not have access to a a range of financial and banking products. Bangladesh would be another example with very low banking penetration, but very high internet usage. And these are economies that are underlying having strong growth, very high digitization, and there is a real opportunity to unlock the financial services access by making the data more accessible and giving the customers better control over their data. We're seeing the emergence of neobanks targeting specific groups who traditionally have been financially excluded, such as Totem for Native Americans in the US. In an ideal open banking world, will these niche banks be necessary, particularly in markets like the ones that we've been talking about in Asia? That's an interesting question. So so the idea of having niche banks is really about optimizing your go-to market and product suite to cater to uh, a certain customer segment. So in markets where niche segments are large enough, I believe one would still see segment-focused initiatives as they go deeper into the context of the customer and offer a complete range of financial as well as non-financial tools to cater to that customer segment. So, you know, for example, I have, you know, I sit on the board of a company in Bangladesh, ShopUp, whose target customer segment is the small merchant of the corner store. And, And their objective is that I want to cater to this merchant and offer the full range of, you know, be it their sourcing, be it working capital credit, be it delivery, logistics. We are here to provide their full range of solutions that this segment requires. So you will still have open APIs and partnerships being stitched together to offer that, but it makes sense to have that niche focus because A, that segment is really large uh, and it warrants a different approach. Um, So you might see this differently panning out in different countries, depending upon the size and scale of those niche segments. Thank you so much for joining me today. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media, or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, That helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.